you stand with me as we um, continue through the book of Acts? We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 16 this morning, a fascinating passage of Scripture that, that depicts the things that were going on in the early church at this time of the church. Um, not a whole lot of weeks after the church actually was birthed on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2. Chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, please follow along as I read from the New King James Version of God's Word. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. They were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And Father, we pray that as we look at this passage today, Lord, that you will give us understanding. Lord, that your spirit would quicken in our hearts the reality of these things and the reality that we serve a God who has not changed. We just sang a song that, that speaks of that, Lord, which is right out of your scriptures, Lord. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, your word declares. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd have your way. Give us understanding. Lord, inspire us. Build our faith. And, Lord, might we live our lives to give you honor and glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys may be seated. Last week, as we looked at the first 11 verses of this chapter, we saw really the second part of what began toward the end of the fourth chapter as we, we saw there that the church was sharing with one another, uh, beginning in verse um, 32. Uh, they, they were of one heart and one soul, and everything that they had, they shared with each other, people even selling their homes and, and bringing the proceeds from those sales to the, to the apostles that they may distribute the funds to those who had need within the church at that time. Then, of course, uh, Barnabas was uh, cited as an example of that in the last couple of verses of the chapter. And then in verse 1 of chapter 5, we see uh, Ananias and Sapphira introduced to us, uh, who basically were, were, were just a, 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 an incredible contrast to those things that were going on in the early church at, the, at that time, as they sold, their, their, uh, sold some property uh, and brought proceeds to the church, and they, uh, they basically lied about the fact that they were not giving the entire sum of money but they said that they did, but they had not. And, of course, we saw what took place. Uh, a judgment came, both Ananias and Sapphira, on 
separate occasions, three hours apart we see in that passage. Uh, both of them uh, die uh, in front of the Apostle Peter as he was basically rebuking them for the lie that they had spoken to God, to God's Spirit. And, and again, that passage is, a, is one of the uh, uh, um, great proof texts that we see in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit is indeed God. Well, we see toward the end of this, actually in verse 11, it says, So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. With the purging that took place, purity developed. With the fear of God comes purity. If we lack fear, we lose purity. It's as, it's as simple as that. Uh, any believer who is living an impure life somehow uh, has either lost the fear of God or never really gained it. I believe that to be true. I've heard more than once uh, from individuals who, uh, even, even a pastor that, that I remember who came out to share with us after he had entered into sin, he lost his position as a pastor and and, you know, he, he shared with us that somehow he lost the fear of God. And so the fear of God and purity of, of heart and soul and action are a result of having a reverential, awesome fear of God. Having an awe for God and who he is. That moves us to live lives of purity. We also see here in this passage, this purity, of course, being a result of those first 11 verses. We also see that there is a tremendous amount of God's power on display in the early church in the form of healings, uh, signs, and wonders being done through the hands of the apostles. And this is a fascinating passage in regard to this. And we'll, we'll be talking about this. I mean, especially the, the idea that, you know, people would lay their, 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 their sick loved ones, friends, uh, whomever, on the street, you know, hoping that, that the apostle Peter is going to walk by and his shadow be cast upon them and they receive healing when that takes place. I mean, that, that, that's an incredible thing. And we have no reason to doubt that that's actually what happened. That actually happened. How could that happen? Why would it happen? We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But along with the purity in the church, also see God's power be manifest within the church through signs and wonders. And, of course, unity was taking place as well, as, as, as we see there in uh, that... Which verse is it there? The first verse, verse 12. They were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Following that, we see that description of people outside of the church not even daring to join them, but they had a high esteem for the people within the church. Yet, there were many multitudes of men and women, it says here, that were added to the Lord. We'll talk about that. That seems to be contradictory there. 
those statements. We'll talk about that as well. So a lot of ground to cover here this morning in this relatively short passage from the book of Acts, these five verses, 12 through 16. But the result of the purging, this purity that, that, that took place, I think that's a very, very important thing. And one of the things, too, guys, let, let's not overlook the way that purity, um, unity, fear of God are all linked to God's power, all linked to the resulting attitude of the people outside of the church in the way that they saw people within the church, their hesitancy, in fact, it says they, they did not even dare to join them, but there was a high esteem. They thought highly of the people within the church. It's all connected. It's all connected. And just as we begin this morning, I'd like to encourage a question that each one of us need to ask ourselves. Is God not working as powerfully in our own lives as he wants to, as he could be, because of a lack of purity? Or maybe and because of a lack of unity? Or and maybe and because of, of a lack of a desire to see God's word lifted up and magnified? Do people around us not have high regard for us because of those same things? Questions that we all need to ask ourselves. But there was, as a result of this purging of the first 11 verses, an uncompromising commitment to purity and holiness that resulted there within the church. Um, not, not the fearful commitment of self-righteous legalism, but it would have been a characterization of because we love the Lord, because we want to honor him because of that love, because we, we appreciate his love for us and the way it was demonstrated on the cross of Christ, loving him, that, that, that holiness and purity are a result of that. Having the fear of of God. Now, that stands in a sharp contrast. I already cited one example that, that I know of without naming any names or anything like that. We, we know of too many instances in which there's a pastor who has fallen from grace and, and it has become very, very public over the years. You know, I, I've been a believer now since uh, 1973, so coming up on 50 years next year. You know, and over those nearly five decades, I've seen, I don't know how many, but way too many pastors fall, entering into sin. And I think bottom line is because, well, as I shared with you, losing the fear of God and entering into sin basically because they believe they can get away with it. But then again... How many of us, I, 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 don't, I don't necessarily want you to raise your hand, I guess you can if you want to, but how many of us here have entered willingly into sin thinking we're not going to get caught, right? 
There's a hand right, right outside the door. He did that because he doesn't think you're going to see him, but I'm pointing him out to you right now. Um, that's what we do. Why is it we think we won't get caught when the Word of God tells us that your sin will find you out? And then later on we say, yeah, I guess that's true. Every word of God is true, isn't it? And as we live our lives, we experience the truth of God's Word. Sometimes in, 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 in many times in, in great, wonderful ways, but sometimes in those kinds of ways as well. But the point being, losing a fear of God. People within the church not having a fear of God, which, which I believe has to be, well, we have to, to acknowledge that at least a part of that is the lack of preaching of holiness from the pulpits in the churches throughout America today. And we see as sins very clearly stated in the Word of God that are allowed to remain within the church, even celebrated within the church. No wonder there's a lack of power. No wonder we don't see God working. But oh, how we need revival. Are you guys playing, praying for revival? But why is revival necessary? What does revival mean? What does it mean to revive something? What does it mean to revive a human body? We have EMT Dan right, right here. I mean, he goes on calls where revival, a physical revival of a human body needs to take place. Why? Because the life has been lost in that body. And the life has been lost within the church to a great degree. Would you guys agree with that? Revival is necessary. And you know, I, I think back, I, like I shared with you, I, I've been with the Lord for 49 years now. Uh, in July, it'll be 49 years. 1973, that was at the height of the last revival that we had. The, the, the Jesus people revival, you might say. You know, and I've shared with you this. I heard Greg Laurie say one time that, you know, we were coming to Christ. And it was so excited, exciting. And, you know, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa there was busting at the seams, doing the concerts on Saturday nights and all these young people coming and, and the hippies and all that. And, and, and we're all so familiar with those stories. You know, but, but he said that, you know, it was just so exciting. And, and we, we just thought that that was all just part of coming to the Lord. But we didn't realize that we were in the midst of a revival. Revival is necessary for us today. But the failure of churches to preach, to teach holy living, the discipline to live that way, and the willingness of churches to deal with those uh, um, saints within the church who, who refuse to live that way. You know, it's not a comfortable thing, but we've had to do that. We, we, we've done that. You know, it, it's, I've, I've asked people to leave the church. I don't make it known to you guys, but I have. You know, and, and it's an important thing. Purity is important. But we live in such an impure society that even, you know, 50% purity seems really good. 
But is it good enough in, in God's sight? You know what I mean? We too often measure things relatively, even though the culture teaches that there is no uh, absolute authority and no absolute morals and so forth. We bring that into the church and think, well, we're doing okay. No, we, we have, to, we have to, 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 to take a look at those things in our lives. We, we, we lose our purity and we do damage to our testimony, which does damage to the name of Jesus Christ. And I would ask you this. Does anyone here really want to contribute to the damage of the name of Jesus Christ in the sight of the people in this world? None of us do. But we don't. We, we, we seem to fail to take the actions seriously enough that would go along with that position. In coming to Jesus, we're making a commitment to him as a person. And as a person, all that he is. You know, Romans 8.29 says this, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, we don't have time to dissect that verse greatly because there's so many other things that we're looking at, but just real briefly, we see that God in his foreknowledge predestined, he predetermined that we would get saved. Well, that's not what it says here. He predetermined that we would be conformed to the image of his son. I've always found that fascinating. It's not so much getting right with God, but it is accurately portraying his life in our own lifestyle, conforming, being conformed to his image, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. The firstborn among, he would be counted among us, but the firstborn among us. And firstborn basically speaks about having a preeminent place. That's what that means. Not the first one born among us, but having that preeminent place. Even as in the Jewish system, you know, the, the Lord spoke to, to, to the nation of Israel that the firstborn son, the son who was the fir firstborn, would have a, a double portion of the inheritance because he had a, a place of eminence among the rest of the kids. That's the idea that we see here with firstborn. So because he's holy, we ought to be committed to holiness. 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be, so, be sober, excuse me, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. We see that a quote as a quote from Leviticus 11, verses 44 and 45, which read this way, For I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Set yourselves apart. Deliberately make decisions, make choices that set, your, that set ourselves apart 
from other people. Set ourselves apart from the way that we used to be. In our ignorance before we came to Christ. Being set apart. Now God does that work in setting us apart in terms of his view of us. But we have to follow by cooperating with that. By setting ourselves apart that we may appear to be different. Appear to be set apart. And the idea of just simply being different from other people, that, that's the idea of holiness. I mean, different in a good, righteous, moral, Christ-like way. Different in that way. Neither shall you, going on, neither shall you defile yourselves with, with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. The same thought is, is, is given in other passages in Leviticus 19.2 and verse, chapter 20, verse 7, for example. Also, because he's righteous, we are committed to righteousness. Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does that mean to seek the righteousness of God? Other than to seek ways that we can live righteously even as he is righteous. It's simple. Not necessarily easy in this world that's so filled with corruption, but it's simple. As he is righteous, might we seek his righteousness. Jesus goes on and says, and all these things shall be added to you. All what things? Well, the previous verses talked about how he will provide for us clothing and food. Not to worry about what we're going to eat or what we're going to wear. But as we seek God, seek his kingdom, seek his righteousness, all these things shall be added to you. And because he is love, we are committed to loving others around us. John 13, 34 and 35. Familiar passage, a new commandment I give to you, Jesus said, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So Jesus gives us the model to follow. His love for you and me is the model for us to follow in loving each other. By this all will know, Jesus said, that you are my disciples. Let me reread this the way that I think he said it. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How can we be known to be a disciple of Jesus? By the amount of scriptures that we know? No. By being good theologians? No. By being involved in a lot of ministry? No. Not necessarily. Only as that ministry is tr true ministry done for the love of the saints. To minister to them and serve them and loving them. That, that's, that, that's what God has called us to. And because he is merciful. We're committed to being merciful toward others. Jesus said in Luke 6.36, Therefore be merciful just as your father also is merciful. In other words, you guys know what mercy is, right? Basically, it just simply, you know, when I receive mercy, 
I'm not receiving the punishment or the consequences, the negative consequences that I ought to receive based on bad decisions that I make, sins that I commit. So if you do something against me and I forgive you for that, I'm being merciful. Basically, this is talking about forgiveness. God forgave you and me based on his mercy, which is based on his love. And we're to do the same toward others. But you get the idea, we're to be like him. In Matthew 10, verses 32 to 39, kind of an extensive passage here, but let's read those eight verses. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Some powerful words in regard to discipleship. What it means to follow after Jesus. Our Lord Jesus wants total commitment from us guys, doesn't he? Total commitment. Not just a half-hearted commitment. Total commitment. Only those who are willing to forsake all, including our sin, and to lose our lives in submission to him. In other words, my goals and my plans and my schemes and my desires don't matter anymore. I'm submitting that all to the Lord Jesus and following after him. That's what that speaks of. A church that is made up of people like that is going to be a pure church with a powerful testimony to the world. And we, as the church, and I'm speaking in terms of the church overall, the worldwide, the real church, uh, we've got to have a testimony like that. But even as an individual church, as a local fellowship here in Upland, Calvary Chapel of Upland, we, I, I, I pray that we bear that kind of testimony to people around us, that we love others the way that Jesus loves us, that we are committed to holiness, we're committed to purity, we're committed to righteousness, we're committing to, to, to uh, not only love, but all the things that spring forth from love, grace and mercy, two aspects of it. The fruit of the Spirit, as we see in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, being born in our lives because we are filled with the Spirit of God. But you know, God, in this time, here in Acts 5, and, and throughout the book of Acts, really, which is in a very real sense, the history of the early church. We, we, we see the church being very active and, and, and doing these things. And so because of that, there was, there was power. Um, 
Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 say, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, that would be the apostles, other disciples, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders. So God bearing witness to the truth of his word through the signs and the wonders with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. How will we escape if we neglect this kind of salvation? Do we see these things taking place now? In the book of Acts, we see these signs and wonders mentioned often. In, in chapter 2, verse 43, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Chapter 4, verse 30, By stretching out your hand, this prayer that took place, asking the Lord to stretch out his hand, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Acts 6, 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. What a great description of a man. Full of faith and power. Two things that go together. Acts 14.3, Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Acts 15, 12, Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. This is when they were reporting in Acts chapter 15 to the leadership of the church what had taken place on their missionary journey that they just returned from. That's the context of that statement. Signs and wonders. I wonder how many of us have actually witnessed a miracle of God? You know what, I'd, I'd like to see, if you have actually witnessed a miracle of God, would you raise your hand? There are a few of you raising your hand. I'd say maybe 10% of you, something like that. Not a little bit more now. Are there a few others who are not just simply raising your hand? You know, God still does work. He does. You know, um, one of the ladies in our church, a number of years ago, she, she had masses develop in her neck near her, uh, near her throat. And she had some x-rays, you know, an MRI and so forth. It showed that there were lumps there. A uh, procedure was scheduled. They were going to be using a bunch of needles and inject things to, to dissolve the mass there. And when the doctor came in, and he just couldn't find the, the, the lumps anymore. They were gone. The church had been praying for her. This happened a few years ago. Uh, a few years ago, my honey was healed of, of, a, of a sickness when I was praying at a men's retreat with other men for her. Came home and she was better. The, 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 the illness left. Um, when I was still at uh, Calvary Chapel, uh, Ontario, uh, before it became Chino Valley, this was a number of years ago, but there was a, like a 9 or 10-year-old girl who was hit by a car. And she was on life support at the hospital in critical condition. And the family asked for prayer. I and one of the brothers at the church went to pray for her. And as we were praying, we laid hands on her and prayed. She's on the life support systems. And while we were praying, we heard the machines kind of 
you know, they, 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 they kind of blank. It's almost like they rebooted. That's kind of, that's what it was like. Yeah, I didn't know the term at the time. This was a long time ago, but it's just like they rebooted. And then, then we, we looked at each other, and then we looked at this little girl, and the countenance of her face had changed. There was truly the look of death on her face. You know, and, you know, sadly, we, we are familiar with that look. You know, just the drawn face, you know, the, the, the sunken eyes and the, the ashen look, you know. Her face was glowing. Her countenance had changed. God did something. Now, so what was that? I, I'm, I've asked the Lord, what was that? I mean, you know, and when we're on life, when, when a person's on life support, you know, needing that, um, there's always a question. I mean, is the body actually, would it expire if not for that? Well, that's the purpose for putting people on life support because the machines are supporting the life. Was that, you, you know, I mean, did the Lord actually resurrect her? Maybe. I don't know. But God did something. Her, her face had changed. God healed her. And, and things could continue to happen. I mean, back in, in the, the 70s and into the 80s, you know, with, the, with the, the, the last revival that I spoke of, you know, there are all kinds of things. I mean, there's, there are all kinds of stories of demons being cast out of people. Uh, those of you who were uh, a part of the church at that time, you, you, you remember those stories that came out, you know. And, and it is true that God does, it seems that these kinds of works are in greater numbers during a time of a revival. And certainly Acts, it wasn't so much a revival as much as the life being instituted within the church. But it's a sign of God's life within his church. And these things continue to happen. Demon possessions, demon people being, uh, uh, those demons being cast out of them. It still goes on. And, and not just simply in other parts of the world. We hear of it more. If, if you read missions books or magazines and things like that, we read more of it there than what we hear about here in the States. Yet it still is happening here in the States. I, I know it to be true. I, I've, re, I've received firsthand witness accounts of it. And so God still does his work, but it seems not in the same kind of numbers that it was going on here. But oh, how we long for this, don't we? Don't we long for this? We've got to ask ourselves why. Why not more? Pastor Chuck Smith said, many people today promote signs and wonders ministries. But unfortunately, their extravagant lifestyles demonstrate a sad lack of purity in their personal lives. They are really an antithesis to the lives of the apostles. And though they claim to produce miraculous healings, those events are most often proved to be fraudulent. Purity is critical within the church Hypocrisy is a horrible evil, and its ultimate effect is the weakening of the church and its testimony. I agree 100% with this. You know, it, it, it's, it's sad that we have to be wary of these ministry, ministries that emphasize signs and wonders. Even though signs and wonders continue to happen, by looking at the lifestyles of these people, you know, people who are 
raising money to buy jets and things like this, right? Like, like a couple years ago. I mean, it's... No. No. Purity is going to be a part of God's powerful work. But have we lost the passion for purity? A passion for purity for the sake of Jesus' holy name? Have we lost a sense of awe of God that existed at this time? That God is truly awesome? Maybe we use the word awesome too much. And when we use it of God, it's not that big a deal. You know what I mean? Has he become too familiar to us? Have we lost the longing to see God's word confirmed through miracles like these? Not just simply for the sake of the people, and that's not an unimportant thing, but the greater thing is the, the honor and the glory of God. Have we lost that? Have we lost the faith to really believe that our Lord can and will do these things? It's one thing to think that he can, to believe that he can, but it's another thing to believe that he will. In Mark 6, we see Jesus going to his home country, Nazareth. He's rejected by the citizens there, basically because they knew him. You know, they ask the question, isn't, isn't his mom with us here in, in the city? His sisters, his four brothers, aren't they here with us? We know him. He was raised here. I mean, he, there's nothing special about him. Nah, you know, they, they rejected him. And something very interesting is said in, in Mark 6, verses 4 through 6. It says, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now, look at this. Fifth verse. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. The power of God hindered through the unbelief of the people in Nazareth. Has the church today become Nazareth? Do we don't believe that he does these things anymore? Believe me, I've, I've asked myself this question a lot lately. As I've prayed for my wife. I've asked myself this. Do, do I have unbelief, Lord? You know, and, and it's like at that point, it's like, well, Lord, if I have unbelief, then answer the prayers of those who are praying the same thing who do have belief. But, you know, I know that God doesn't heal everyone. The scriptures are clear about that. You know, Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians 12, he, he, he writes about that. He prayed three times for this thorn in the flesh to be removed. And what was the answer that God gave to him? My grace is sufficient for you. So I depend on God's grace. I would much rather see the grace come through healing of my wife's body. I will take the grace I need to deal with that in a godly way. To love her in the way that she needs to be loved and cared for. I will take that grace and I know it's available to me, but do I 
because God doesn't always heal, do I automatically come to this place where it's like, well, I don't think he's going to heal her. I struggle with that. I've, I've talked to my daughters about the same thing. They, they go through the same thing. You know, it's like, I don't want to be presumptuous, but I also don't want to be faithless. So we get caught in this place. So I don't think it's because of unbelief on my part. But at the same time as I read the word, I can deceive myself also. So I have to just always be in that place asking, Lord, purify me. Heal my wife. Touch her. Give me your grace to, to, to love her now, but God, heal her. I believe he can, I, and I know that God is doing something, but, you know, and, and, and I come back, to, I follow this place. Well, maybe what the Lord is doing is just he's wanting to provide a testimony to himself in another means other than healing her. And if he doesn't heal her, I think that's what he's going to do. But do I just resign myself to that place rather than believing that she's going to be healed? You know what I mean? It's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. But I want to be at that place. And I think that this, this is one thing that God is doing to keep my prayer life fresh, I think. I think that's one of the things that's going on. But in terms of unbelief, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 19. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt? led by Moses. Now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. But notice the way that unbelief is connected with, in verse 18, disobedience. Connected, in verse 17, with sin. Connected in verse 16 with rebellion. Those are, those are uh, manifestations of unbelief. And so if there's anything in our lives that's taken place that is, well, let, let me put it this way. If the Lord is speaking to the heart of one of his children, and we just don't listen. He says something like, you know, you need to get this thing out of your life. And we love that thing too much. Whether it's rebellion against God, whether it's just simply sin, whether it's disobedience, all of it is unbelief. Let's be careful, guys. Let's be careful. Now, in this passage, back to Acts chapter 5 here, we see all these signs and, and wonders taking place, and we see something interesting. I'm going to go ahead and, and, and look at verses 15 and 16 because it's connected to the healings that were taking place. And, and there's this, this influence 
Uh, one, one commentator that, that I read called it a shadow influence. Um, this is a part of Eastern thought, the Eastern culture, uh, that these kinds of things can take place, and it's indicative of the beliefs of the people. Now, nowhere does it say in this passage that there was any kind of inherent power in the shadow of Peter, yet it seems like there was. That's what people were wanting to do, just get their, their loved ones into the shadow. You know, further on in the book of Acts, in, in chapter 19, we see that people were taking aprons or handkerchiefs from Paul to sick, to sick loved ones so they might be healed. There's, no, there's nothing in an apron or, or, or in a handkerchief that would promote healing, obviously. And it's not unlike the, the woman with the issue of blood in the book of Luke. For 12 years... She had this issue of blood and spent all of her living on doctors to help her. She could not find anything. But remember what she said in her own mind and her heart? If I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. Now, there, is there any power inherent in a garment, in the hem of a garment? And we might say, well, when Jesus is wearing it, there is. We might say that. But no. I, I like the way Pastor Chuck Smith handles these passages. He said, The shadow of Peter or the clothing of Paul simply represented a point of contact where the faith of the believer is activated. That's what that believer believed to be true. Now, we might believe, well, if I go to the elders of the church and I, I, I'm anointed with oil and pray, then I'll be healed. That becomes a point of contact. Or you could be like the Roman centurion whose daughter was, was ill, died. He said, no, you don't have to come. Just say the words and she'll be healed. What do you believe to be true? What do you believe to be true? Where is the point of contact with your faith? Is it, well, when I see it, I'll believe it? Sometimes that's the point of contact, and the faith is never activated because they simply just never see it. Or what they might see becomes something that is explained away. But as we already read, our unbelief can hinder the work of God. That's where we need to be today. We need to be looking at our own lives and ask the Lord, do I have unbelief? And are there signs of that unbelief in my life? Rebellion, disobedience, sin, for example. God help us. This passage says that many were healed. In fact, verse 16 says they all were healed. This idea of the shadow influence leads to a question which was posed by H.A. Ironside, who said, who wrote, 
What about our influence? See, Apostle Peter had this influence where they were saying, if, if we can just get our loved one into the path of his shadow, they'll be healed, right? But what about our influence? Are we so walking with God that people like to come into contact with us? Or is there so little of Christ about us, are we so self-centered and worldly that no one would think of bringing people within our influence to be blessed and helped? In other words, do people around us see us as a blessing rather than a nuisance? God help us. We see there was unity in the church, don't we? In, verses, uh, in verse 12 there, they were all with one accord in Solomon's temple, in Solomon's porch, excuse me. And unity is very important within the, within the ch uh, church. We know that to be true. I'll just read two uh, passages real quickly and move on from this. We talk about unity in the church often and our need for it. In John 17, verses 21 to 23, Jesus praying, Pray this to his Father, as he was praying for us, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. That's critical. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I've given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you've sent me second time and have loved them as you have loved me. Clearly in Jesus' prayer, one of the results of unity within the church is going to be that the world will see that Jesus actually was sent by God the Father. People in the world don't seem to believe that. They don't see it because there's such a disunity within the church. Is it any wonder that Satan does all that he can to create division among us? And we allow him to have his way because we are too sensitive to our own passions and desires. My way, my goal, my desire becomes more important than God, his way, his desire. His holiness, His work. Philippians 2, 1 and 2, Therefore, if there is any consolation, Paul writes, in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Unity. Very, very important. We also see in verses 13 and 14, we're going to close with these, with these thoughts, that none of the rest dared join them. But people esteemed them highly. They had, they had high regard for the people of the church. But also we see that believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Yet none of the rest dared join them. Now, what does all this look like? What exactly does this mean? If none of the rest joined them, how is it that multitudes of men and women are being added to the Lord? 
What on earth are we talking about here? And what about this thought that they were highly esteemed? The church was highly esteemed by the people around them. Well, in this seeming contradiction, F.F. Bruce wrote this, the point seems to be that the death of Ananias and Sapphira scared off all but the totally committed. You might remember in John chapter 12, this may uh, be familiar to you, verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. In Jesus' day, and certainly at this time in the church, in the book of Acts, the Jewish authorities threatened to, people, to put people out of the synagogue if they would believe in Jesus, if they'd become a follower of his, if they would speak in his name. And of course, we're seeing here, we're in the midst of this section here in chapters 4 and 5, where twice in the following passages gonna, we're going to see how the apostles were thrown into prison once again and then brought before the Sanhedrin in question. Because they keep speaking in the name of Jesus. And these healings are taking place. But there was this respect that the people had for them. You know, guys, I think one of the things that too often happens within the church is that we are so concerned about people coming to Christ that we will dilute the gospel to make it seem easier. And so in diluting the gospel, you know, somebody comes to Christ, the question has to be, did they really? Or did they come to something that was not of Christ? Right? Or, not only do we dilute the gospel itself, but our own lives become compromised because we don't want to seem like a hindrance. We don't want to cause waves. We, we, we don't want to be a trouble to anyone because we're supposed to be loving. And if I say this, if I do that, if I don't stand up for righteousness, if I don't stand up for holiness, I seem like I'm a self-righteous hypocrite. Well, maybe. Then other areas of our lives need to conform with the image of Christ so that we can be an influence for Him to speak the truth of the gospel of God and to confront issues of impurity where purity is important, and especially within the church. We can't expect our government to be pure, but we can expect the church to be pure, right? Let's be careful about how we handle these kinds of things. But there was a respect. This is why I will say often, it's like one of the things that, that, we, that we have control over is not to bring people to Christ, not to bring people to our way of thinking. That's the Lord's work. But it is my job for people to look at my life, hear what I say, and to say, well, I don't agree, but that guy sure believes what he's saying because I see it in his life. That's all we can ask for. God uses that. 
And even if in the, co- in, in the course of that, we upset people, we upset an apple cart or two, waves are made, let's let God deal with those. Let's God, let God deal with those. Let's not deliberately do it just to make waves. But if I live a holy life and it makes waves with somebody else's life, it's like, well, so be it. I'm not here to make your life comfortable. I'm here to be a witness for Jesus. Right? And you guys are too. Here to be a witness for Jesus. Note the difference here in these phrases. I just want to point this out. Verse 13 and 14. Look at this. None of the rest dared join them. Verse 13. Verse 14. Believers were increasingly added to the Lord. I find it interesting the way that those phrases are worded. There would seem to be a fundamental difference between daring to join the church and the other phrase, being added to the Lord. This is talking about that no, none of them wanted, even dared to join with this group of people, even though they were highly esteemed. I mean, let's face it, incredible things were taking place. All Jerusalem knew the works that were taking place at the hands of the apostles. They understood this, and and the people within the church, because they were pure, and because they had seen what took place with Ananias and Sapphira, these things were, I mean, it spoke clearly to them. It's like, I don't want to join that group. But God handed it to them. These are some good people doing some decent things, and incredible works are taking place. But multitudes of both men and women were coming to faith, added to the Lord. If I dare to join something, I'm making a choice myself to do it. But if I am being added to the Lord, that's God's work being done. One of them is active. Daring to join them, that's an active thing that people would do. But being added to the Lord is something that is done to me and for me by the Lord, right? So it's God's work. I think that's a fundamental difference. Even though none would be, would dare to join them, the Lord began doing a work in many hearts, and it came, they came to a place of understanding their need for salvation. That's what it comes down to. We don't join a group of people because it's a nice social club to be a part of. It looks like a good, decent group of people. I, I like to be with them. Maybe people come to maybe people come to church because of that fact, you know. And if if people are here for that reason, I'm glad. If people are in any church for that reason, I'm glad because they'll hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's when life can be imparted to them. But it becomes an issue of receiving the life from God, right? An issue of receiving forgiveness for our sins, an issue of understanding that we are sinners, who our only hope for eternity with God, is what Jesus Christ did on the cross for my sins. He paid the debt. I can't, and I acknowledge that. I receive the debt that Jesus has paid for my sin as full coverage of that debt, and now I belong to him. He purchased me. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's what that means. God, by his Spirit, draws us. We don't join. God, by his Spirit, Join, uh, draws us. And I fear that there are too many people who join a church 
thinking that that makes them right with God. It doesn't. Sins forgiven. Redemption through the blood of Christ. Being born again, as Jesus called it. Born from above. Receiving God's life from above. That's what it's about. That's being added to the Lord. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, our bodies alive, but dead spiritually, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Have we been saved by that grace? Have we all here acknowledged our need for a Savior? Have we all received his life from above? Has Jesus himself added us to himself? As it says in this passage, I pray so. Let's bow our heads. Father, we pray that you'd have your way in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would do your work in us. Lord, that work of us coming to a place of acknowledging our need for you. Lord, we don't join a church in order to receive your life. But we receive your life and then become a part of your church. And I pray, Lord, that that has happened with every soul that is in this room right now, but perhaps not. Lord, I pray that you would have your way in every heart here. And guys, as our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed right now, perhaps there is someone who needs the life of God. Maybe for the first time, maybe it's a revival. Something that was once there but has died and needs to be brought to life again. Whatever the case, if you're not right with God right now and you want to be, you want to acknowledge that you're a sinner who is estranged from God and can only be brought near through the blood of Christ, I'd love to pray for you. Would you raise your hand? Anyone? Anyone at all? The Lord may be speaking to your heart and you may be doing some battle with him. You may be arguing with him in your heart right now. No, not here, not in front of these people, not right now. God bless you. I see your hand right now. Anyone else? You know you need the life of God. You want his life. Anyone? You may lower your hand. Father, thank you for this one who's raised, who has raised uh, his hand. And we pray, Father, that you'd have your way in this life. Lord, you know exactly what's going on in that heart. You know why that hand was raised. We simply pray, Father, that you will do your work. And thank you that you as God are the author of life. Thank you for bringing it. Thank you for having your way. Do your work now in this person's life. And Lord, I pray you do your work in all of our lives here today. And those who perhaps resisted your spirit even this day, at this moment, Lord, continue to draw them to yourself. Continue to show them who you are. Continue, Lord, to show them their need for you. And God, we ask it all in the name of Christ, your Son, our Lord, and our Savior. Amen.
Amen. Let's all stand together, shall we?